Please turn with me to the book of James, chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verse 7, but I'm going to read verses 4 through 7 for the sake of context. Adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace? Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for allowing us to open up your word today. And we ask that you would give us wisdom as we consider these truths before us. We ask that you would press upon our hearts the the seriousness of our walk with you. Please give us wisdom and understanding. Grant us your Holy Spirit to, to help us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we talked this morning about redemption. And one of the things we have to consider is that Jesus did not deliver us from slavery to sin so that we would remain slaves to sin. Does that make sense? We were told that we were in bondage to sin, but that the blood of Christ was a ransom so that we could be free from sin. So the expectation, as we're going to see here in James is that because we've been set free, we actually live like freedmen and not like slaves to sin. So, so we saw this morning the, the, the grace of God, and, and, and I purposely did not want to get into um, examination of our faith, and, and is this true? As, as Lloyd-Jones would say, um, if, if sometimes we don't preach the gospel in such a way that we're accused of being antinomian, then we don't preach it freely enough. But, but after we have freely received the gospel, we, we also need to understand how are we to live before a holy and righteous God who has set us free from our sins. So we have been looking here in James at the proper response to the grace of God. James is correcting his, his readers with very strong language we have seen so far. He refers to his readers as adulteresses because of their love for the world. They're living for the world. In other words, they're spiritually unfaithful. They, they are covenanted together with God, but they are like an unfaithful spouse living for the world. And he warns them that friendship with the world is 
enmity with God. So, so if you make yourself a friend of the world, you are making yourself God's enemy. Strong language here. And he warns that that Scripture does not say in vain that, that God is a jealous God. And we saw that this is, a, this is a frightening combination. If God is a jealous God, what happens when we commit spiritual adultery and provoke him to jealousy? This is a, a frightening place to be. To provoke God to, to jealousy, which is oftentimes associated with his wrath in Scripture. But, but just when we begin to feel the, the weight of provoking God to, to jealousy, James changes the course and he says, but he gives more grace. So he, so he points us to the sufficient grace of God because he's referring to believers here. And the next thing James tells us is that God resists the proud, but, but gives grace to the humble. This means the, that the proper response to God's grace in light of our sin is humility, to humble ourselves before him. So since God gives grace to the humble, since humility is the proper response to divine grace, what are we to do? What does it look like to, to humble ourselves before the Lord after being confronted for our sins, because this is precisely what James is doing. He is confronting us. James deals with many individual sins of his readers throughout this entire letter, and now he brings things to a head. After pointing out specific sin after specific sin, he summarizes this behavior once again as spiritual unfaithfulness and friendship with the world. But after pointing this out, he says there is grace available. But what must the true Christian do? And perhaps there are professing Christians here today who have been living this way. Professing Christians today who, who have been living like the Word, and you know it. You, you know that you have been guilty before God of, of not living for Christ, but, but living in your sin, enslaving yourself to sin. And if that describes you, James is confronting you and he is telling you what you need to do. And in many ways, he says it's time to make a decision. Who are you going to serve? Pick and choose. You can't live for God and at the same time live in your sin. Make a choice. Whom are you going to serve? And so James tells us what to do. And in the last time, we, we, we started this section by, by looking at the first command he gives. He says in verse 7, therefore submit to God. So therefore is in, in light of the fact that God gives grace to the humble. So because God gives grace to the humble, we are to humble ourselves before the Lord. And what does that look like? Submit to God. The very first thing we need to do. And so we looked at what it means to submit to God in general, and, and we saw how extensive this command is, that we are to submit to God in every area of our lives. We are to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Christ. If we are going to humble ourselves before the Lord, the very first thing we need to do is to submit to all that we are commanded to do. But James is going to define this another way today. And so if we were to look at submission to God as a coin, there are two sides of this submission. So after James says submit to God, he gives two commands with two promises. 
Number one, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And number two, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So what does submission look like? First of all, resisting the devil, and secondly, drawing near to God. So let us consider the first today, resisting the devil. Verse 7, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Douglas Moo says, placing ourselves under God's authority. Okay, here's, here's submission. What does this mean? Well, negatively, it means that we firmly refuse to bow to the devil's authority. The verb translated resist means to stand against. And it can also be translated oppose or withstand. So we are commanded to, to stand against the devil, to oppose the devil. And there are many implications to this. First of all, once again, James is pointing out that the myth of neutrality. This again shows us there is no such thing as, as spiritual neutrality. He is telling his readers to stand against the devil, to oppose the devil. Why? Because that's not what they've been doing. What have they been doing? Living in their sins. James says, if you're living in sin, you're not opposing the devil. Therefore, you need to submit to God. And the first thing you need to do is oppose the devil. There is no neutrality. If James' readers were not standing against Satan, this means what? They are standing by him, standing with him. There is this myth that people have. That even though I don't submit to God, I also don't submit to the devil. I'm kind of just out there morally neutral. You, you go and ask a person on the street or anywhere you go, do you obey the God of the Bible? And if they tell you no, you ask them, do you obey Satan? And what are they going to say? I'm not some kind of creepy devil worshiper, so of course I don't obey Satan. But is that true? If they are not obeying God, who are they obeying? The devil. There is no neutrality. There's no middle ground here. I don't have to submit to God, but I'm not a crazy devil worshiper, so I don't submit to him either. This is what people say. But if we are not submitting to God, we are actually standing with the devil. There is no moral or spiritual neutrality. And this is why the first thing James says about submitting to God is that we need to stand against the devil. His readers are not doing that. When his readers were committing spiritual adultery and befriending the world, they were not standing against the devil. They were befriending him. Instead of opposing the devil, they were making themselves enemies of God by joining sides with the devil. And this is crucial for us to understand as Christians. We are commanded to oppose and stand against the devil. But when we choose to sin, we are not doing that. Different do we recognize that Satan is an enemy to be resisted. If we're going to live in submission to God, we must be serious about standing against this enemy. 
We are all constantly engaged in, in, in personal spiritual battles, cultural spiritual battles, and we are constantly making decisions to either obey God or obey our sinful desires. I don't need to prove this point. You, you know it's true. You know you are constantly battling in your mind. If, if I do this, this is sinful. Should I do it? And, and oftentimes we fail and we do it anyways, knowing it is sin. We need to have complete awareness of the implications of our decisions in those moments of temptation. When you are struggling to obey God and are tempted to sin, you need to recognize that if you give into that temptation, you are standing with the devil instead of opposing him. This is what James is saying. You are not opposed to him when you give in. You are siding with him. In that moment of sin, you are saying, Satan, I choose you over God. I side with you. I oppose God in this moment, and I stand with you. When we choose to disobey God's law, we are actually opposing his law. By saying the better thing to do is to disregard your law in this moment. And by doing this, you are standing against his law, which means you are standing against him, and you are standing against Satan who abhors his law. Do not think of your sins as anything less than this. Sin is not a small mistake. Sin is not just a little mess up. To to sin is to stand against God and to stand with the devil. This This is the point he is getting across here. And he's calling us to, to, to stand against the devil. Stop standing with him. We need to oppose him. But dear friends, this means that we must be on guard. We need to be thinkers. We need to be discerning. We need to be able to discern the difference between standing with God and, and standing with the devil. Otherwise, we'll be fooled into thinking that, 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 that we're standing with God while we're actually opposing him. Satan is crafty, and he's smart enough to know that that for the most part, if he's going to get Christians to stand with him and stop opposing him, he has to do this by deceiving him, deceiving them. What better ways to keep Christians in sin than to make them think that their sins are obedience to God? What better way to advance his own cause than to deceive Christians into standing with him in the name of following Christ? You don't think this happens? Let me prove it to you. How does Satan do this? Well, let us just consider some of the the sins that James points out in this letter so far. We can look, for example, at the sin of partiality that that James covered in chapter 2. This this judgment based upon external factors. James tells us in chapter 2, verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then he warns in verse 9 that that if you show partiality, you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. 
And we are warned that God himself is opposed to partiality. We are told in Deuteronomy, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial. And in Second Chronicles, Let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality. God is opposed to partiality. He himself is impartial. And he commands us to show no partiality. And through James, he informs us that if we show partiality, we are committing sin and we are convicted by the law as transgressors. So let us put this this together. God does not show partiality. He commands us to show no partiality. He warns us that to show partiality is sin. This means that God is opposed to partiality. Now if we show partiality, which, which God is opposed to, what are we doing? Are we not standing in opposition to God? He hates it. He says, be warned, I do not show partiality, and my expectation is that you show no partiality. If you show partiality, it is transgression of my law. God is opposed to partiality. So if we are partial, what are we doing? We're actually standing up for that which God is opposed to. And and I'm, and I'm using this example because it's so obvious today. So considering what I just said, there are Christians who, in the name of justice, are showing partiality. Let me state this another way. There are Christians who, in the name of justice, are standing against God and refusing to oppose the devil. Because some Christians can't discern, for example, that that social justice is not biblical justice. They are refusing to stand against the devil. They are standing with the devil by embracing and pushing his false view of justice while they stand against God by opposing biblical justice. Did you see what's happening there? What is Satan doing there? He has Christians saying, I'm actually pushing partiality in the name of biblical justice. So they're standing against biblical justice, which means standing against God, and they don't even know it. They're opposed to God and standing with Satan, thinking that they're serving God. And this may sound harsh, but but it is true. Let, Let me show you. In order to promote Social justice. You have to practice partiality. You, you, you must judge people based upon the color of their skin. Now, if social justice is partiality and God is opposed to partiality and partiality is sin, then where did social justice come from? Did it come from God? We know better than that. Did it come from some neutral Position? If it didn't come from God and it's not neutral, there's only one other explanation. And James tells us where it comes from in chapter 3. Do you remember what he says? There's only two types of wisdom. 
There's the wisdom that comes from God, and there's only one other type of wisdom. And he says in 3.15, this is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. If social justice did not come from God, it's demonic. Its origin is the devil himself. This means that those who are embracing this ideology and embrace, that they're embracing doctrines of demons, satanic teaching. This is what he's saying. This sounds extreme in our culture because we, we believe that there's, there's three different views. There's, there's evil, there's science, and there's good. That's not the way it works. It's either good or evil. It comes from God or it comes from Satan. So, so how are we opposing God in this area if we are embracing doctrine of demons and, and teaching them as though it's biblical truth? This is why we must be discerning. And yet Christians and pastors and theologians and seminary professors have been deceived by this teaching. This means we have churches and seminaries who in this area are actually standing against God instead of opposing Satan. And you remember the example I gave you when we, when we covered partiality a while back. I, I talked about this professor at, at, at Southern Baptist, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, the, the, the great seminary. And what did this professor say? He said, I am a seminary professor, and in theological education, you are hard-pressed to find any evangelical institution that have a regular requirement of black and brown authors. And often what happens is whiteness becomes the standard of which all good theology is judged. If it's white theology, it's right theology. So for this man, because seminaries don't judge theological books based upon the color of the author's skin, it's a sign of injustice. It's a sign of white supremacy. So what does he want to take place? He wants seminaries to examine a theological resource that that pastors and, and future pastors will be using to learn from and judge it based upon the color of the author's skin. We have enough white authors in here now. This is the best book, but it's not the best black book, so get it out of here. What is this? This is partiality, plain and simple. And we are in trouble if, listen, we are in trouble if the men who are instructing our future pastors and leaders are opposing God by standing with the devil in situations like this. Men who have this type of discernment have no business teaching others. But this is why we must be on guard. And we must be discerning if we are going to oppose the devil because he is smart and he is crafty and many are already deceived. So that if we are not careful, pastors and seminary professors and theologians will instruct us and even guilt trip us into doing the very thing that James condemns. They're telling you, be anti-racist. Don't just be 
non-racist. Be anti-racist and you need to embrace that. They are telling you to embrace partiality in the name of justice. They are telling you to, to, to disobey God by being partial. And by the way, do this in the name of Christianity. Let me reinterpret that. Don't oppose Satan. Stand with him in the name of Christianity. That's what I hear when I hear that. And this is what we need to hear when we read something like that. It's not just a minor error. No, you're actually saying oppose this teaching that's found in the Bible. Embrace sin. Embrace partiality. And the reason I point this out is because, again, we are very deceived today. And how can we stand against the devil like we are supposed to when we can't discern the difference between Scripture and doctrine of demons? We don't know the difference. We can't oppose something when we don't even know what it is. We can't oppose something that is opposed to Scripture when we don't know Scripture. We must be discerning. And it's not just a matter of discernment. Because if we're going to stand in opposition to Satan, we must also learn to not be cowards. Satan, in many ways, doesn't have to rely on deception. I'll throw this temptation at him, and he's such a coward that even though he knows his temptation, he's going to embrace it. Because if he doesn't, he's going to get canceled. And he's afraid of that. She's afraid of that. This person is afraid of being looked at as an outsider. This person is afraid to reject the, the idols of their culture. This person is afraid of being laughed at, so I know they'll embrace this sin. Dear friends, if we are going to be faithful Christians resisting the devil... We're going to be called extreme by most American Christians, most American professing Christians. Take a hard stance on abortion. That's not loving. Christ wouldn't do that. Take a hard stance on homosexuality. You're a bigot. He gives us comfort. He says, if you resist him, he will flee from you. Again, this sounds like an impossible task. Satan has great influence around us, and he seems powerful, and yet we are told to stand against him. This seems difficult, but lest we despair about this, we are given a promise along with the command. We are told to resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The devil is an enemy. But for the Christian, he is a defeated enemy. MacArthur says, just as the devil left Jesus after the temptations in the wilderness, he will also flee from all those who resist him. Here is a pledge that the devil can be defeated as powerful as he is. And Moose says, whatever power Satan may have, the Christian can be absolutely certain that he has been given the ability to overcome that power. Consider this in light of our message 
this morning. Being told that, that we are free from the guilt and the bondage of sin. No longer slaves to sin, but yet you know that you still struggle with sin and you might feel like a slave to sin. What are you to do? You are to resist understand Goliath and who owns his vileness and sinfulness and flies to the grace of God and the blood of Christ. Satan knows not what to do with him. He is puzzled, baffled, and confounded. Such he leaves. He, from such he flees. He does not like the power of prayer nor, nor the strength of faith nor the sharpness of the two-edged sword, the word of God. Notice where John Gill took this. It's not just a matter of me sitting in a corner trying to resist temptation. No. He's, he's actually giving us weapons. And he's given us power. And he's actually given us armor to resist. But we're not sitting ducks, helpless, in the midst of temptation. What does Paul say? Ephesians 6, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He's saying the same thing James is saying. James says, resist the devil and he will flee. And Paul says, by the way, you have some armor to do that with. You have some weapons to do that with. You have the power of God to do that with. You are not on your own. This, this is not just a matter of self-will. He is telling us how to stand against the devil. You do this by being strong in the Lord and in the power of His might and putting on the whole armor of God. And Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness in this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. That Greek word, therefore, withstand, is the same word James uses for resist. They're both saying the same thing. Stand against the devil. Resist the devil. Oppose the devil. And so Paul says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication. In the Spirit, we are armed and we have armor for the battle. We are not left to ourselves. So not only are we told that if we resist the devil, he will, in fact, flee from us, but we are told to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, for he has given us armor and weapons for our battle. He has not left us to ourselves. I have delivered you 
from the slavery, the bondage of sin. You no longer have to obey, but Satan wants you to obey. But guess what? I've given you armor, and I've given you weapons to resist him. And, And listen, when you resist him long enough, he understands he is a defeated foe, so he will flee from you. This should be an encouragement to us. If you feel like you are a slave to to your sins right now as a true believer, understand that you are, are not. You've been redeemed and you've been given armor. And you are to stand in the strength of God. And when you do this, there's a promise that that Satan will flee. He won't stay there. Resist, for there is light at the end of the tunnel. We, almost, we must also understand this. James is writing this to Christians who have actually been set free from sin and therefore can actually resist. But if you are not a true believer today, you have no power to resist Him. You are a slave to the power of darkness. If you are not a true Christian today, you you first need to put your faith in Christ and you need to repent of your sins. And once you have truly believed, you will be set free from the bondage of sins and thus able to resist. But you must be a Christian. James is writing strictly to Christians in this regard. This should be a cause for us to examine our lives. Look at our lives and ask ourselves, are we actually opposing the devil in every area of our lives? Or are there areas where we have actually cozied up to him, befriending him, James warns, be a friend of the world and you set yourself up as the enemy of God. Why? Because God is opposed to him. Which means if you are going to that side, God is now opposed to you. Dear friends, if we find areas of our lives where where we are not yet opposed to the devil, let us repent and confess those things and submit to God by resisting the devil. And let us not go into despair, but remember that, that the blood of Christ even washes away those sins. And may the grace of God here move us to obedience. This is, this is what James is doing. We, we often think of, of James as just, the, as just law, nothing but law, but there is grace here. He says he gives more grace, and once again, he, he is doing this to move us to obedience. Yes, some have been living like the world, spiritual adulteresses, friends of the world, but he gives more grace and he wants us to obey. So he is telling us how to do this and he is encouraging us. Listen, you don't have to live this way. And if you stop, if you submit to God and resist the devil, he will actually 
flee. The temptation will cease. This is all the grace of God. And it should move us to obedience. Let us pray. Father, we ask for wisdom to even know what it means to oppose Satan. That you would give us discernment in our lives to to know the difference between your word and doctrines of demons. Help us not to be deceived. And help us to be obedient. Help us to be a people here in this church who, who are constantly repenting, constantly confessing our sins, and constantly submitting to you by resisting the devil. Father, help us to oppose Satan in our individual lives, in our homes, in our minds, in our workplace. And help us to also oppose Satan in our culture, in our community, in our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.